have a look at the screen. I love optical illusions. So have a look at these dots. What would you say if I told you they were actually exactly the same color? Come on. I'm not lying. They are. What's your reaction to this one? What happened to this guy? Ooh, what if I told you, does your reaction change if you tilt your head to the side? Um, and then take a moment to size up these lines on the screen. What if I told you that they are all exactly the same length? Come on. Now, even if you've seen these before, for at least a moment, you're totally convinced that those dots are different colors. And uh, you feel a twist in your gut for the poor mutilated guy on the screen, which is actually just a puppy. And the middle line is absolutely longer than the other three. Um, but when confronted with reality in just the right way, uh, you have a choice to make. Will you cling to your old view or embrace a new way of seeing? Now, those images are just fun party tricks. But what if you are suffering from inner blindness on an issue of life and death? You know, lacking eyes to see where it counts. If we are deeply and truly honest, we will, each one of us, admit that we suffer from at least partial blindness on many issues in our lives. Today, the final Sunday of Lent and the last Sunday before Easter, I invite us all to consider what it means to be eager for eyes to see when it comes to the cross. Now, I don't intend to bring new knowledge about the cross today, but rather to invite us all to see more deeply and with greater clarity what's already there. And I invite us to recognize our blind spots and welcome a clearer vision. In some ways, the message of the cross is really very simple. Love, forgiveness, through faith, redemption, salvation, eternal life. However, the deeper we dig and the more clearly we perceive, the more there is to see in the cross. And these words are big words, redemption, salvation, eternal life. Each one contains a rich trove of story and imagery woven like a silver thread throughout the scriptures. And it's easy to skim the surface of these words in which case we can easily hold to a meager view of the cross, or even a twisted view of the cross. But this church is a church that holds the reality that God is always making a way for his people. The blind can see. Jesus himself poignantly declared in Luke 4 that the Spirit of the Lord was on him to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. And what we see determines how we respond. So let us today gaze deeply at the cross and be eager for eyes to see the cross of Jesus of Nazareth. You with me? Okay, let's read our scripture for the day. Would you please stand with me? Get your calisthenics again. We will honor the scripture by standing as we read this story. As you're able, here we go. John chapter 9. As he went along, Jesus, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he said to himself, he said, he insisted, I'm the man. Well, then how then were your eyes opened, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash, and I went and washed, and now I can see. Well, where is this man, they asked him. Oh, I don't know, he said. So they brought him to the Pharisees. And uh, now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. Now, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he could see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who was blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. They asked him, well, how did, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I told you already, you don't listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Ooh, they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he came from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? They threw him out. Well, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Oh, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus answered, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The word of the Lord. Oh, well done. Grab a seat. Thank you for standing so long. That was really, uh, that was a long one. Appreciate your perseverance. That's a good one, though. What a story. Whew. Man, these blind guys really steal the show. Hey, Terry. In this epic story, that man born blind is made to see, but more than just physically, as you can see. He sees who Jesus really is. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, on the other hand, apparently have no trouble converting photons into imagery, but they're completely blind to the reality of who Jesus was and his identity. So what's the difference? It seems that the man born blind was eager for eyes to see in all regards, while the Pharisees seemed aggravatingly content in the dark. It's easy to disdain their actions and their views, especially since we know the next 2,000 years of the story, but I invite us this morning to actually relate to the Pharisees. I invite us to see aspects of ourselves in their posture. And I invite us to uphold the man born blind as a model for us when it comes to Jesus and the cross. Let's start with the Pharisees. What is blinding them? They seem to have a twisted view of God and of the law, and in this case, especially the Sabbath. They are pissed that this guy can see because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. They seem to think that Jesus is a heretic. Now, at its heart, that Pharisee movement is actually quite comparable to Daniel and his three friends in Babylon. The desire to stay true to Yahweh in the midst of a foreign culture and power and religion. In that context, the practice of Sabbath is actually really key. It's an anchor point for the Jewish people to their faithfulness to God. Uh, so the root movement is admirable, praiseworthy. They uphold faithfulness to God and to his law. Can't argue with that. But somewhere along the way, the Pharisees' desire to be true to God has shifted to a desire to be true to their constructed boundaries of holiness. 
So in particular, their view of Sabbath has become twisted and distorted. Sabbath laws about what you can or cannot do on the Sabbath has become more important to them than the pursuit of holiness, a holistic justice, righteousness, love of neighbor, like healing a man born blind. And their view of God has become distorted and twisted too. The God of their making cares more about rules than people, and that produces pride instead of humility. And they're so utterly convinced of their Sabbath rules that they don't even notice when the creator of the Sabbath itself is before them. If each one of us pauses here for some soul searching, I wager that this is something in our own way we can relate to. Just swap out blindness for the Sabbath to blindness for the meaning of the cross in some way. Um, I'm going to give a list of some suggestions. Now, hypocrite in process alert. I've fostered all of these to some degree at one point or another and cling probably to some now even in the corners of my heart, if I'm honest. So I invite the Spirit of God to bring light to any hidden corners of your heart. Consider uh, who among us clings to the notion of the cross as mainly a ticket to heaven, an escape boat on a sinking ship that is humanity. Who among us cling to the cross as a tool for drawing a line in the sand, separating us and them? A boundary marker for declare who's in and who's out. Who among us have allowed the cross to become a bastion of pride, uh, deep down telling ourselves that we are a bit better than those other sort and probably deserve the power of the cross just based on a little bit of our merit? Uh, who among us have used our knowledge of the cross to stand above others as a know-it-all, condemning, judging others who don't seem as good at this Christianity stuff as us? And then who among us spend more time and energy working out the theology of the cross than time and energy sitting at its feet and walking it out. Some challenges there. Or from the other side of the spectrum, um, who among us have looked at the cross as arms of acceptance spreading so wide that we just come as we are, stay as we are, clinging to the mantra, Jesus loves me, but holding at arm's length, Jesus is Lord. Or who among us have seen the cross in church after church and on jewelry and on tattoos and on and on, and you've allowed some ambivalence or some disregard to attach itself to the cross. You know, who among us have allowed the cross to become a bit cliche or maybe irrelevant or outdated? Another symbol among many. Now, the Pharisees upheld Sabbath rules above love of neighbor, and they misinterpreted Jesus' work. But I'm saying that I think there's at least three ways that we can misinterpret the cross and therefore be blind in our own way. So ask yourself if you don't in some way see the cross as being about rules and lists of things to do and boundary markers. Or ask if you don't in some way disregard Jesus' more radical and unreasonable words and deeds in favor of a more comfortable cross that blends with our culture. Come as you are, enjoy a free cosmic hug from God, but be true to yourself. Yeah. Lastly, ask yourself if you don't in some way see the cross as a bit irrelevant. Now, we give the Pharisees a bad time, but come on, I think many of us can relate to being partially blind in these ways. Right, so that's encouraging. The highly educated, the intelligent, socially powerful think the creator of the Sabbath is a depraved sinner, a heretic, totally untrustworthy, and sometimes, practically speaking, we do as well. But the man born blind, here we go. What of him? He was the bottom of the social rung from birth, basically no hope of worldly success, stigmatized as steeped in sin at birth, begging for his daily bread each day. He doesn't even get a word in. Jesus just slaps some mud on his eyes and sends him off, and that's it. Uh, and he sees that Jesus is a man of God. What we see determines then how we respond. Now that's remarkable, he says. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's what he says. He has the courage and boldness to say it in the face of trial, persecution, insult, 
social ostracism, a man he met for a few moments, rubbed some mud on his eyes and sent him off. And then Jesus seeks him out, second time. Come on, God comes where he's wanted. That sermon's been done. Um, In that second meeting, he sees Jesus even more clearly, and this time he falls at Jesus' feet in submission and worship. Now that response is compelling for me. I want to see Jesus so clearly, and I want to respond like that today. When it comes to the cross, most of us face a, a culture that scoffs at its power and its reality. The man born blind, however, after this brief encounter with Jesus, risked his social standing in the community to declare what he'd seen. Jesus is a man of God, worthy of our full attention. Sure, he was a beggar without much to lose, but the challenge remains, is our view of the cross so compelling and so consuming that we would stand up and boldly proclaim its goodness, its relevance, and its power? In my own experience, when I've shied away from speaking boldly of the cross, it's not usually been of cowardice, but more so because... Um, If I'm honest with myself, I just hold a view where the cross isn't really worth all that effort. You know, it sounds horrible, but I think it's true for me sometimes, especially in the past. I reckon a lack of boldness and courage around the cross probably says more about what we see when we look at the cross than about our personality or anything else. And so imagine yourself before Jesus uh, in in that old, those days when he was walking the earth, and you can choose to take the posture of the Pharisees or of the man born blind. Who would you rather be? And so we come this morning to try to open our eyes. It's easy to look at the cross through well-worn lenses that limit our view. We all bring preconceived notions of what it symbolizes and means. It's easy to mold the cross to fit our secular view. And many of us have grown up in a culture where the story of the cross has become old news and where we're uh, acclimated to the story. But the invitation this morning is to see the cross and to see Jesus with the same eagerness for eyes as that man born blind. Each one of us can always improve our sight. And Jesus is the master optician. So let's hop in the optician's chair, shall we? What is there to see? Um, I've spent this Lenten session myself steeping in the images and metaphors and teaching about Jesus and the cross in songs and in the scriptures, um, the mystery and glory of Jesus and his cross, especially in old hymns like this morning. And I think that to make sense of the cross, we need to better understand our sin. And so I've got five images for you as we consider our sin. Okay, here we go. Image one, uh, sin as a crime or sin as a stain. So it's easy to see sin as the result of breaking some laws. The loss is one thing and I have done another. Don't steal and I stole. Honor your father and mother and I was rude to my parents. Uh, like a stain on our shirt, a nasty one like an oil stain or blood stain. The crimes we committed against God himself, so he's the only one who can do anything about it. And in that view, forgiveness is like a judicial clearing of our name. All our accumulated wrong thoughts, words, deeds erased, which is great. Our records, as it were, wiped clean, and the stain laundered to perfection. We think of Jesus taking our place before the judgment seat in God's court, and he takes our punishment, and we go free. And that's all true, Um, absolutely, but there is more. Sin also describes more than individual actions, more than thoughts, words, and deeds. Sin describes a heart posture, like an attitude, a rebellion against God, Uh, A turning from complete and loving submission to him and his ways to follow our own desires. In sin, we choose to take the role of our own God and our own authority over what is good and evil. So consider your experience of something like this. When you're really hungry, when you're tired, and when you're sore or in pain, and all at the same time. Okay, can you picture that? And then you're confronted with an aggravating person or situation. 
do the desires of your heart and the thoughts of your mind go towards what can I, how, what can I do to get what I want? Or what can I do to serve this person made in the image of God and to serve my heavenly father to whom I submit in every way willingly and easily? <laughs> there it is. Our hearts have turned inward on themselves. This is sin. A deeper look at the Hebrew words used for sin really help uh, as we move forward. So from the Bible Project, image two, the Hebrew word chata. The Hebrew word chata means to fail or to miss the goal. The word is not always about morality. In Judges, we learn that a slingshot expert who successfully nails the bullseye, uh, bullseye does not chata, which means they don't miss the target. God's ways and his laws are not arbitrary. He is guiding us back to the mark, the target. So if sin is missing a goal, what's the goal? The opening pages of Genesis describe how we were crafted by God in his image. So the goal is to reflect the image of God. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project explains that word image is the Hebrew word used for statue. Like in most cases, it's translated idol, as in the statue that represents a false god. So in that sense, we stand as a representation of the true God, his visible model to the world. And God describes himself as compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and full of justice and righteousness. So that is the mark. That's the goal from which we fall short. Not just doing those right things, but being the image we were made to be in our heart and our mind and our soul. We can't experience a restoration of our very nature through court proceedings. You know, we need a creator, a gardener of our soul. So image three, Avon. The Hebrew word avon is similar, uh, is another word for sin, but it means iniquity. The biblical authors use avon to describe a twisted or a crooked road, a malformed back that's bent out of shape. Isaiah uses avon to mean dazed and confused. Avon is about distorting what was otherwise beautiful and good, and the authors use it to refer to behavior like murder or adultery. So in that sense, sin describes something about our very nature that's twisted, crooked. We can't fix a twisted or crooked road uh, or a spine in a court of law or a washing machine, right? We need a physician or a builder. Image four, Pasha. The biblical authors explore more of the relational consequences of sin with this word, Pasha, often translated transgression. Pasha refers to the ways that people violate the trust of others, like the betrayal of a relationship or rebellion against authority. Take, for instance, a law in the Hebrew Bible about theft. If people are away on a trip and someone sneaks into your house to steal, that's robbery. But if, someone, uh, if the thief is your neighbor, that's pasha. And why? Because a neighbor is someone you should be able to trust. So pasha, or transgression, describes the rupture of trust in relationships, like a lack of faithfulness, a lack of integrity, leading to painful experiences and harm to everyone involved. Now, I stole all that from the Bible Project, okay? Um, yeah, it's not me. Again, you can't fix broken trust and broken relationships and the harm they've caused in a court either. You need a counselor or a restorer or a reconciler. Okay, so you're tracking with these images here. Image five, last one. Sin as disease, death, and destruction. So if sin is missing the mark, a twisted and crooked nature, a broken trust in relationship, then it starts to make sense why Jesus talks about vines rooted in anything other than himself as dead branches, uh, tasteless salt fruitless trees, which are all bound for destruction. Sin corrupts us in every way. And if we don't confront it through the power of the cross, it will destroy us. Sin is like a disease that left to its devices leads to death and destruction. So my good friend Aaron Greaves stepped on some barbed wire a few weeks ago. It's in his heel while he was uh, checking out the surf. It was just a small wound. So he cleaned it up and moved on, went for a surf, carried on. 
but the infection, the infection spread into his leg. Uh, he started to experience intense pain in his lower leg, swelling, limping. And when he poked at his heel with a pin, there was this goo oozing out like toothpaste from a tube. There was a picture, which I gratefully didn't put on the screen. <laughs> um, but I've got it in my mind. Thank you, Aaron Greaves. At that point, would you advise him to bandage the wound and take some painkillers? No, this is, this is not a stain or a superficial wound. The infection's on a rampage up his leg. He could lose his leg or even his life if he didn't get on it quickly. Right? That infection needs to be wiped out. So thank you, Lord, for the daily IV infusions that saved Aaron Greaves' leg. Um, but for us, a, a, a disease cannot be dealt with in a court either. We need a physician. We need a healer. So I hope you can see that sin isn't just a crime. The cross of Jesus does more than just take our punishment. The cross of Jesus has opened the way for the Spirit of God to work in us as creator, healer, builder, counselor, reconciler. Yeah, if we allow him, Jesus changes our very hearts uh, to restore them back to his intended heart posture. Jesus does indeed take our place in God's court. And we are no longer fearing destruction for our wrongs, but the good news is even gooder than that. Jesus also acts as a physician, healing the contagious disease of sin. He wants to rid us of that forever. Because of the cross, Jesus is also like a gardener, tending the plot, cultivating the hard, dry soil of our heart, pulling out competing weeds, preparing us to bear fruit. So the cross invites us and empowers us to turn from that rebellion against God and from his authority and restores us to undivided devotion to him. It's like in our communion theology, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. Delight in your will. You can't make that up. You can't just will delight. You cannot will delight in the will. Allegiance and belonging to God's kingdom under King Jesus instead of the king of the world of sin and death, now and forever. To live a life of renewed love. That is the good news. And this can deepen what we imagine when we hear words like redemption and salvation and eternal life. So that's where we come to this morning now. I'd like to present to you a gallery of images of the cross that present it to all of us in a beautiful and holistic way. Um, given that corrosive and invasive view of sin, I invite us to look at these images and recognize the cross is like a beautiful giant diamond. Um, it's so substantial, so enormous, so multifaceted that it's hard to behold the whole thing all at once. Um, the scriptures themselves present the cross from many different perspectives. So what we see determines how we respond. So let's see the cross in its fullness. Um, in my experience, I tend to focus and have in the past on the forgiveness aspect, which is true, but you miss some of the power of the cross if that's where you stop. And this is not a lecture, okay? There's a bunch of images coming. Do not try to memorize them all. There's no test. Please just pick one or two that, that speak to you that Jesus seems to be putting on your heart and hold on to those one or two. Okay, number one, uh, forgiveness. Now, we've covered that familiar truth already. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's life-giving. But number two, redemption and freedom from slavery. To redeem means be delivered or rescued. It harkens back to Israel being redeemed from slavery in Egypt. So before the cross, we are slaves to sin, darkness, evil, bound for destruction, chains, prison. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, says Jesus. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus leads us out of slavery. He also says in Isaiah, in Luke 4, sorry, quoting Isaiah, he has sent me, Jesus, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. Number three, adoption. Before the cross, we're like orphans. 
like lost children, but now adopted children, sons and daughters of the king of the universe and co-heirs with Christ. So in Jesus Christ, you are all children of God through faith. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What a sure and solid identity, son or daughter of God Almighty, heirs to a, like a royal throne or a royal lineage, endowed with authority and power and heavenly riches and the favor of the king. Just imagine all the earthly wealth that comes with uh, uh, the heir to a wealthy family you know, here in New Zealand. We have the entire kingdom of God in our name, but that's a whole other sermon. Number four, citizenship. Before the cross, we were all foreigners to God's kingdom, outsiders, strangers to God. Now we are citizens, members of his very own people. Uh, there's a sense of rights and privileges that come with citizenship, but also the beauty of identity and belonging. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Hmm. Number five, grafted branches. Before the cross, we're just dry, wild, lifeless branches. We lie to rot, waiting to be burned in the fires at the rubbish tip. Jesus uses these images himself. But now we're grafted into the mighty tree of God himself, nourished from his roots. Some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. There's only one source of life. Jesus invites us to be a branch in his vine, to abide in him. Number six, clothed in Christ. Before the cross, it's like we're wrapped in dirty and stained rags. You don't get into the throne room of the king wearing stuff like that. But Jesus, he covers us with himself like a mantle, like a prestigious corduroy, normally reserved only for people of great importance and great status, but now draped over the shoulders of all who declare Jesus as Lord. This is us. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. We can walk with our head held high and our shoulders back without even a hint of pride. We just know that God looks at us and sees his own son or daughter like he sees Jesus. We're wearing Jesus. Number seven, new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And he says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So if sin distorts the view, um, the image away from the mark and image of God, then the cross works to restore us back to that image. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, full of justice and righteousness, just like our Father himself, made new. Number eight, from death to life. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. We were all dead spiritually before we ever die physically. This is from Dane Ortland. Christ was not just sent to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. Jesus says, come with me if you want to live. Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> come on. I'll be back next week. Number nine, defeat of death and the forces of evil. Defeat of death. Jesus has triumphed over evil on that cross. Through death, he's destroyed death. Through enduring great evil, he has undermined the very power of evil. Jesus himself said, now the prince of this world will be driven out. 
And Paul says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So we no longer need to fear the forces of evil with the Spirit of Jesus. Two more. Ten. Priesthood. Before the cross, unless you're born an Israelite, um, you have no godly priesthood to turn to. We were under the spiritual authority of principalities and powers of darkness. Now he calls us priests in his own temple. Each of us. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Says Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. You each now have spiritual authority to approach God through the cross. The final image, number 11, temple for God himself. In fact, he calls us individually and corporately his very temple. Not, we don't just tend his temple where his presence dwells. We are his temple where his presence dwells, his Holy Spirit. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit as corporate. But also, do you not know that your bodies, individual, are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who's in you? Whom you have received from God. Corporate and individual. He lives in us. My friends, it doesn't get much more intimate than that. The good news can't even get any better than that. Forgiven, redeemed, adopted, citizens, clothed, made new, resurrected, victorious, priests, dwelling place of the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Without Jesus and his cross, we're totally lost. We need Jesus and we need the cross. So let's wrap up by considering what do all these images mean, like practically speaking? You know, what are these images for me today or tomorrow, um, tomorrow morning or at work? in the middle of trials and suffering and difficulties in life. The invitation this morning is to come to Jesus and ask him that yourself. We'll provide time at the end. What does he want to reveal himself to you this morning? And, and the power of the cross this morning. One invitation is for sure. Jesus invites us to follow him in the way of the cross. So let's talk about that for a moment. What do we do about the cross? You see, the work of Jesus isn't just a one-off. It's not like he, we wrote some metaphorical graffiti on our soul and then he just rubs it off. It's partly true, but our souls were diseased and dying and misshapen and he continues the work of healing. So we must follow him. Jesus leads a kingdom and it seems upside down, but two aspects of Jesus stand out for me in the Easter story. We follow Jesus, a humble servant, and we follow Jesus, a suffering king. King Jesus, the suffering servant. Just consider the actions of Jesus in the 24 hours leading up to his death. Follow along with me in your imagination. He washes the feet of his disciples and teaches them to be servants of all. His utter distress and anguish in the garden. He's abandoned by his friends, lonely, isolated. Yet he is calm and collected before the authorities. He bears the insults, wounds, humiliation, and suffering at the hands of the Jewish leaders and soldiers. Arriving at the point where all strength is lost and others have to carry his cross... He comforts the women mourning for him on the way to Golgotha. Humiliated and shamed, he's nailed naked to a post for all to see uh, and scorn. And yet in that place, what does he do? He turns his attention to his mother and her future care, asking John to care for his mother. He turns his attention to the, the criminal beside him, offering him a seat in paradise. He turns his attention to his persecutors and offers them grace and mercy and forgiveness. He turns to his father commits to him his spirit as his strength fails him and as his life is snuffed out. The author of Hebrews tells us twice that uh, God made Jesus perfect through suffering. 
It's easy to see the Bible as a long story of how God would redeem the world from suffering, which is true. But in the cross, we see it is also the story of how God would redeem the world through suffering. Now, not because suffering is admirable or appealing in any way, but the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are at odds. To walk in the way of God's kingdom means to push back against the kingdom of the world, and that involves suffering. It certainly did for Jesus, and it will also mean the same for us if we follow him. We follow Jesus in his way. Paul said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. What that looks like in your life today and tomorrow, you will have to ask Jesus today. He knows what that looks like for you. So with all of that before us, a full view of the nature of sin, a full view of the staggering and intimate uh, restorative power of the cross, and this upside-down kingdom of our suffering king, that phrase eternal life takes on new meaning today. Without the cross, we face the opposite of eternal life. We live a life here and now ruled by death and evil, guilt and shame from our sin, distant from God, mind and heart in slavery to sin, and our image of God marred, eventually beyond recognition, in the end, destruction, apart from the cross. But in the cross, which accomplishes just so many victories and ushers in reality-altering changes, we've got the forgiveness and the redemption, the adoption, the citizenship, the branches, the clothing, the new creation, the death to life, the feet of evil, the priesthood, and God lives in our very being. And living that new life starts here and now. Eternal life, this very day, is part of eternal life. It's uh, life of the age is another way to translate it. The age of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We live it now and forever as we follow Jesus, our suffering servant king. So the question is, do you want that kind of eternal life? I want that kind of eternal life. So the invitation today is like that man born blind, to look at Jesus and to be eager for eyes to see. When that man met Jesus a second time, did he demand that Jesus explain how the healing worked? Why the mud, Jesus? Or to provide a, a scriptural thesis to defend his claim to divinity? No, he asked Jesus to help him understand. Who are you? And he fell at his feet in submission and worship. The rest will come in time. We can only imagine he got up and followed Jesus. Now we are invited to the same thing today. Invited to see and more importantly, to invited to fall at the feet of Jesus and his cross in submission and worship. Invited to be made new in every way. Invited to follow the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as fellow suffering servants for the glory of God. Think back to those uh, line illusions at the start, that twisted face. Do you feel like in any way the cross was like this and then after today you sense that the cross is a bit more like this? Do you sense at all that the cross was maybe a bit confusing, like a bit of a jumble, and now you sense as you tilt your head, you can see it more clearly? Ask Jesus to put mud on your eyes and then wash your eyes in the living water of his presence today. The JC Spa treatment. <laughs> Do you see Jesus' call to follow him? Do you see the call to follow him as a suffering servant? And if so, ask him what the next steps are look like for you today. Um, I just pray, Jesus, this morning that you would make us eager for eyes to see like this man. Jesus, may we respond with submission 
May we respond with worship, Jesus. We follow you in your ways of servanthood and suffering. Jesus, we look to you and your cross, Jesus. We look to you and to your cross, and we say, Jesus, speak to us this morning, each one in their own way, revealing and challenging and guiding. I want to end with some poetry from When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's amazing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. <laughs> 